And welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Ha ha ha! Yes, it's our 200th episode, so we're retiring the scream today. No! <laughs> oh, see, now it's bad. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, we can't let go of the scream. Oh, that's true. Can well, you contain a scream? Depends what kind of gag and muffler you use, but yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just going to let that go. Yeah. You're going to softball them in there like that. I know. Blowing <laughs> and fruit and all. Hey, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And welcome to our 200th episode. Yeah, we're going to change a few things up. And yeah, we usually do the boomer talk when we talk about weather. Well, hey, that's probably going to happen now and then, but we hope you're enjoying yourselves and having a good time. Things are looking up around here. Yeah, getting my uh, get my spring on. Yeah, Mike's been inoculated for a while, and I just got my first dose, so I'm house I Moderna. Have, I already have plus five against all COVID-related encounters, and minus two to all COVID-related damage. So we might be able to get out on the road this year and uh, do some stuff. So yeah, like conventions. So we're looking really forward. looking forward to this. This I, it's so good. To have 2021 have so much opportunity sitting in front of us. Yeah, so we're going to just talk about our 200th episode. We're not going to leave you in suspense because you've already seen it. This episode is going to be our Au Revoir OSR. And Au Revoir, sweet OSR. We loved you so. And if you consider yourself a hardcore member of the OSR and you're just having fun doing a lot of the things... Uh, that make gaming fun, then, hey, we're not calling you out, and no. we're not in any way going to try to down on or dog on anybody who's just doing their thing and just having fun with what it is. Do what you do and have fun. This is just about us. We're going to talk about our experiences coming into the OSR and leaving. Yeah. And where we are now and where we will be later. And Yeah, what uh, were the causes? What were the, the you know... Uh, influences of the events that unfolded around the beginning of the OSR, uh, catalog some of the things that uh, we thought of as really valuable experiences in participating in it, and, you know, the, the reasons for, uh, I would say, drastically reducing uh, our participation in it. You know, just sort of a beginning-to-end tale. Okay, uh, And that's a fitting 200th episode because, honestly, I don't think without the experience of the old school revolution, we would ever have had the idea to do the podcast. Uh, because for us, OSR involved a huge participation in bringing old school gaming styles uh, back to the table for new players. So it, it was a major, major life changer uh, an incredibly positive experience, and a big inspiration for doing this podcast. Right, and so it's in our DNA. If you've seen me on Twitter, I put my RPG DNA up there. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty proud about it. I don't know what that is. RPG Where you go and you put uh, several or half dozen influences of what, you know, this is the game that influenced you, and I had to put... Not only uh, just the basics like you would figure, like Pathfinder and D&D and stuff like that, but I also put things like Deadlands, Paranoia, Call of Cthulhu. Oh, yeah. All that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, follow me on Twitter or Warhammer. Just, uh, gaze at me angrily on Twitter, then uh, you can see what part of what makes up my RPG DNA. 
But uh, we oh, also yeah. have a couple new episodes we're going to be incorporating from now on, so stick around for those. But we're going to get right into the topic in just a minute here. But first, we're going to do our shout-outs. And for this 200th episode, we have a little bit of a list, and we want to thank every one of you who have listened and sent us messages, even the haters. Yeah. I, uh, we like uh, feedback. We grow from learning and taking criticism. We're not perfect, and we never tried to make this anything other than just two guys sitting around and talking. And i got to hand it to our occasional critics, which I think uh, we have been really lucky to have some terrific critics. Yes. People who have... They have provided insight into things that were lacking, uh, things that were not done as well as they could have been, uh, and really focused on emphasizing how much potential there was. And I, I feel like, uh, although, yes, there have been a few people that were not necessarily good actors uh, uh, you know, from the get-go, that's been really rare. Uh, and instead, we've been blessed with this wide array of people who have just contributed fantastic ideas consistently. And yeah, this, this segment is entirely about gratitude. Yeah, and even to the haters, I do have to say we need better enemies. But uh, you, <laughs> to all three of you out there, you know who you are, stink bugs. So I hope you live a long and rotten life. Oh, what's it been? Like 200 episodes and three people that were really nasty? Yeah, three, yeah. yeah that's it. We need better yeah, enemies. I'm now. not sorry. Yeah. No, so we want to thank uh, Jim Brown. Uh, you've been giving us some great insight, and definitely, Jim, we're going to be hitting some of those topics, particularly birthright I want to dig into. Ooh, and uh, yeah. we'll also be talking about some of the other things and episodes. Since you like to talk about uh, the published and settings and stuff, uh, or hear about it more probably, we'll be bringing that up. So you'll yeah. be in for a treat on that. There will be several of the campaign settings that we have not yet covered uh, they will get the treatment, uh, and fairly soon, too, because they are part of classic gaming. They are part of the early releases that shaped what people thought of as a potential campaign setting or a successful campaign setting, and they are absolutely essential coverage, so we really have to. Yep, we'll also be doing some features here, so that brings us to Joe Richter. Thanks a lot, Joe, for all the call-ins and all the support. You're our Little gaming brother, we love you, man. And um, we also have to say that Thought Eater, uh, Frosthoth, we haven't heard from you for a while, but that doesn't mean Psy you're not out there and I'm not uh, watching you do. The psionic platypus is yeah. on our minds. Also, or up, in them. updates from the middle of nowhere with Lurian. Oh, Lurian. Playing it wrong as well as the Deeper Sentinel podcast. Uh, I know the Deeper Sentinel has wrapped up. They did a coda a while ago. But uh, playing wrong still out there. Todd McKenzie, uh, Gilbert Sars, and I hope I pronounced that right. If not, I, my apologies. And Jason Connerly. Yeah, thank you guys for your support and everything that you've done for us. We can't thank you guys enough. And Shouts out to the blog. They might be gazebos. A lot of fun to read. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, we did kind of hint that maybe we'll be doing some YouTube stuff. And, yeah, we will be doing some YouTube stuff coming up in the near future. Uh, there's a couple things that have to happen for that, of course. And those will take their course in due time. But do not despair. We're doing this podcast every week. If we do a YouTube segment, we'll probably do that monthly. Yeah, as an addendum, not as a replacement for the podcast. We may be transitioning... To YouTube in the way that, you know, we 
start experimenting with it. And if it works out really well, then maybe that's something we'll look at. But I don't see that becoming anything more than just a side gig. So who knows? Uh, yeah, and that, that will be just principally to... There are very specific subjects where it is wonderful to have a visual element. And for those very specific subjects, yes, that is worth going on to YouTube and like kind of expanding our repertoire a little bit. Uh, but obviously the podcast and the podcast format is still to be respected. We might be doing no some uh, unboxings and other things like that, especially oh. coming up with some unboxing stuff that I am privy to certain secrets in this industry, yes. Ah, um, yes, yes, I know I what you speak, but... I, I cannot, can. I am, I am allowed to hint at it, but I am not allowed to speak of it directly, but I will be getting a preview copy, and once I get the permission to, from the publisher to go ahead and do that, I might just, we just might go right there and do an unboxing visual, as well as our podcast unboxing, talk about that. Yeah, and well worth it, it shall be. Uh, however, you know, that said, uh, there's a tradition that will stay with us into the new year. Uh, we just allowed a fluttering of the kimono for mm -hmm. things to come. So the, the fluttering kimono is still with us. 200 episodes in. Yeah, it's all that uh, burritos that uh, Mike had the other night. Uh, and the back of that kimono is just flapping in the breeze. Uh, I'm holding it down like Marilyn Monroe. Ooh. <laughs> Yes, but you can expect no less from the podcast that... Oh, oh, you can expect no less from the 70s movie described as a zany romp of gaming podcasts. Oh, because you'd... when you hear those words... Oh, you know you're in for a treat then, huh? Yeah, uh-huh. Dom DeLuise is going to be making a guest appearance, so that's how we know. Yeah, uh, you can always trust the word zany romp to guarantee the... Uh, you know, this is going to suck. You might want some extra popcorn yeah. to make up for the, the lack of content. <laughs> An extended bathroom break is required. Go out and smoke one in, outside in the parking lot. You used to be able to smoke in the lobby, but we're not going to get into that. Also, thanks to Abby Dreski and Pat Galligan, our uh, guests. We'll be trying to get more guests in. Uh, as you can see, that uh, this last year hasn't really been conducive. As a matter of fact, uh, we had no. to cancel last week because we had a little viral uh, infection in the household here. So here at the patent household, we had to make some judgment calls. And we just weren't able to get the time in to get the podcast out. Well, they were bitten by a radioactive uh, piebald lemur. Oh, uh. <laughs> lemur powers, yes. Yeah, yeah. They're incredible lemur powers. Uh, so, I mean, after the doctors got rid of those prehensile tails that had popped out, uh, hey, they're I back like to that. normal. They're back to normal now, yeah. I promise. I like that prehensile tail. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Um, when we're not busy being crepuscular and awesome. Oh, well, sure. But you said crepuscular. Yeah, that's cool. Anyway. We want to thank all the people who've given us support through, now uh, well, it's been about three years. Three, uh, we'll see if we can make it to 300 episodes, and then we'll see who's still here. So, we'll still be here in 300 episodes. Will you? And hopefully we can keep your attention and uh, garner why, right, some it. more and uh, keep it going. So, In the words of Yellowbeard, why they'll have to kill me before I die. Yeah, so don't don't worry, no no <laughs> frets. 
about uh, where we're going to be. We'll be right here. You know where to find us. And also thank you to the Anchor Podcast Network. Now yes. with Spotify. And uh, we have done pretty well in expanding our venues. Still that Apple Network seems to be our major audience. Yeah. Which yeah. caught me a little off guard. I, yeah. I really had underestimated uh, the you know scope of the, the Apple Podcast yeah, Which, yeah, I mean, of course, that's where the, you know, a lot of the podcasting began. Yeah, the iPod, pod, they call it podcasting. Yeah, and thus the term, but I mean, yeah, it's been a consistent source with the very wide audience range. Mm-hmm. So, bravo. Uh, thanks to all. Yeah, and so we're just going to take a brief break right here, and we'll be back with our topic for today, which we're just going to ramble on incoherently. <laughs> about uh, our time in the OSR and how... Oh, there will be a linear progression of details. So, I mean, uh, rambling aside, uh, there there is just... It's a celebration of the 200th episode, and this is one of the things that, to us, is the, the root cause of us even doing this. So, it, it merited a little time to reflect on, like, how things have evolved. So... With that, I suppose we'll take our yep, break. We'll, take our break. we'll be right back. All right, we're back, and yeah, no need for the dramatics. We like to just kind of pretend this is a radio show. I like to pretend I'm an engineer as well as a human being. So, Vader's and, up, Mister Engineer. That's right. John Wayne, <laughs> Texas funeral. <laughs> You're a good horse, Shades. Yep. <laughs> That looms large. That's part of our DNA, too. Is uh, Yeah, we talk about comics, but also music. Maybe we should just uh, occasionally talk about more than just using mo- music as uh, a mood enhancer. No, I, I was actually intending to pitch to you an episode on the subject of, rather than music that is used to augment gaming, I was going to say reversing it to music that has been inspired by gaming, yeah, by okay. fantasy, and that references directly. And in recent decades, there has been a lot more of that. So it's it's worth a thought. We'll we'll put some notion work into that for a later date. All right. Well, we'll we'll do that. We'll our ending session. We'll uh, casting the augury. We'll put that in there. Give you a brief preview. It's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So that'll be one to put in the the uh, loop. But, all right, so, yeah, you guys tuned in to hear some guys ramble on, and here it is. So, welcome to it. Yeah, so we're talking about the OSR and what it means to us and kind of why we put it in the hindsight of our career right now and why it's always going to be a part of us because that RPG DNA, it's encoded into us. So, you know, we don't have to be old school. We are old school in the same way that Diogenes... On the punk scale, <laughs> he is not punk. Punk is him. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I can't see the forest through the trees. Uh, yeah, Diogenes the Cynic. Uh, yep. Taking it to the max way before the others. Uh, all right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I don't feel like we have a lot of old school chops to prove. Uh, because, I mean, if you were there at the time... Uh, it's very hard to buy into the, you know, uh, insistence that people have that, like, only this is gaming and only that is gaming. 
I saw an awful lot of different stuff in a really short period of time, a long time ago. Uh, like just an enormous variety of approaches and interests. And I saw it all happen uh, in my youth. So the pretense that only very narrow bands of activity constitute old school gaming never held water with me. Because it just, it doesn't ma- the narrative there does not match my experiences, which if you're having those experiences in the 1980s, at the tail end of the 70s, and like 81, 82, yeah, having people try to contravene that and say, well, only this was it. No, that may have been true at your table, but that was not true for the world. So for us, old school, uh, it definitely had a positive connotation. I mean, it just automatically brings back these incredible fond memories of those first moments of discovery, where we were cracking open those books for the first time, buying modules, uh, discussing them with friends, mm-hmm. picking up miniatures, hanging out together, painting them you know, scrupulously and painstakingly. Uh, yeah, kudos to you. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm being called out here. I, uh, for being scrup- scrupulous and painstaking? I, you really could paint a mean miniature at like 15, dude. You, <laughs> you had a lot of talent for just a young buck. Uh, and that talent has only grown over the years. Aww. But that was old school for us. That was the, the real deal, sitting down at a table with uh, four to six friends consistently weekend after weekend uh, from the time we were about 13, 14 years old. So just an amazing journey to be on. And so now here we are discussing the old school revolution, the, the enormous backlash against radical changes in the nature of the game. So kick off with a little of oh, what well, okay. that um, Well, gee, put it all on me. Hey, uh, fourth edition happened, and it was announced... I think at Gen Con 2007. And, you know, people were kind of told by TSR, uh, Wizards of the Coast staff, that, uh, hey, you were playing the game wrong. (laughs) Third edition was bad, broken, and you should play something else. Now, I know that was one person talking, but at the time, that was the head of the R&D. That was Bill Slavishek. So, yeah, screw that guy. Well, they, they gave him his talking point, and I'm, I'm not calling the guy out on the carpet as incompetent or Oh, absolutely or not. The guy did uh, There well. was some broken stuff about it. Uh, they had so many... Yeah, you're, nothing he said things. in that statement was uh, yeah. wrong, except for that it wasn't... You were playing the game, a bad version of the game, and this new version is the one you want to play. Now, being... Open about it, uh, I went and played a game, and they asked uh, me what I thought afterwards. And I said, hey, it's a really great game, but it's not D&D for me. It's just not D&D. Now, not a rip to anybody who likes it or has had fun with it, because it comes out, and here's where the part of the OSR is, like, it's out, that sounds a lot like gatekeeping rather than nostalgia talk. And I'm guilty of saying nostalgia is poison at the same time saying that, you know, I like some of the things in the, in the past. But I like having that duality of views because it's a complicated process. Yeah, nuance is called for here because you can have a great affection 
for a thing from the past or a, a thing's previous incarnation without letting it poison your ability to enjoy new things that come out. I, I had a I negative like... reaction to Forth as well uh, because I very strongly felt that it dynamically shifted away from a lot of the familiar mechanics that I would have recognized as D&D and there were aspects of the 4th edition era that just, it seemed like an enormous amount of marketing effort went in without a lot of respect for the origin point uh, of the game. I, it just too radical of a divorce from the original material. Uh, too quickly, and I was a big fan of the open gaming license, so I, I, I smelled conspiracy, and I'm guilty as charged. Well, what I was going to say is, yeah. I like Joy Division. Forbidden Pleasures, but that's not the end-all of all albums. I've, I've listened to many, many different artists, including a wide diverse, and I've always kind of kept my nose in the air Slipping out some new stuff like Clown Court and uh, Sax Squatch. He likes some smooth jazz played by a guy in a Sasquatch suit. That's right up your alley. Something you didn't think you needed until the pandemic hit. I know. But anyway, that diversion aside, gassing it back. So really, at that time, it felt like, well, there wasn't going to be anything for third edition. There was You could still play it, and obviously that was going to happen, but... You know, I said, you know, in a lot of ways, they're not entirely wrong about 3rd edition being broken. I noticed that there was a a build ethos, and that carries forth in the Pathfinder, where you plan your character from level 1 to 20, and it resembled a lot of the online role-playing games, like WoW, where you had a strategy, a build strategy to go through to optimize your character. You had to do it because that's a kind of competitive environment. However, role-playing games are a diverse environment, and it's one where you can create your own narrative and change the scope of the game at a whim. Yeah, it has... As long as the purposes. structure is adhered to. I mean, you know, obviously, if you're going to house rule something, you need to discuss it before just springing on it, and obviously a player just can't dictate their new character abilities to the DM without some conversation. But those things can be changed, and so what I say on a whim, they can be done so, but they can be changed without a great deal of labor. I, I gotta say that it's a fair assessment that the fourth edition, while it was a clean slate to start over, because no matter how much affection I bear for previous editions, 3.5 had had a lengthy run uh, with the open gaming license, and so much additional material had been released, some of it official, some of it not official, that it had really bogged down gameplay. I mean, you know, let us break forth the library of 257 manuals uh, from which we draw the information for this session. Holy cats. Yeah, who that said story? that intellect was the prime requisite for gaming? Apparently it's strength. Yeah. That, Lugging that stuff around, boy, oh. that kept me in shape for a while. Anyway. Yeah, but point being, 4th edition was a clean slate. It had this incredible opportunity and I, I know I'm being nicer than I usually am. I'm notorious for my, my fourth edition hate. The truth was it was a somewhat called for opportunity for a clean slate 
that fell prey to some development concepts that I just radically differ with. And I, I feel like there was a push to make it more similar to collectible card games and to video games uh, that were very popular at the time, to, to forge a connection. And it just didn't click. It, I mean, the attempt was there, uh, and I, I honestly believe they refined a great deal of that approach in the fifth edition. They resolved some of the radical departures right. in form. They made a better attempt to smoothly integrate. Right, but I think we're getting games. a little ahead of ourselves here because we're trying to set the stage of yeah, where we were at in 2008. doing, but it, right. at, at that time when it happened, our disapproval was pretty much unanimous. Well, yeah, we were. Like, well, this I was does a little, not work for me. I was a little off put by the things in third edition, and like I said, what Bill Slavisek said was there was nothing wrong in the way he said it, or with what he said, but it was in the way he said it, and that's where I was like, well, fuck you, and I'll do my own thing. So, <laughs> I took my Dragon Magazine archive, I sat, bought two printer cartridges, and I printed off everything from the old days in Dragon Magazine that I like to incorporate as house rules, including critical hit charts, the fumbles, uh, different classes for the monk and the bard. Yeah, you know, just the NPC classes that I always enjoyed, like the Deathmaster and the Jester and others that maybe I could throw in there. And well, the uh, classics like the Duelist. Uh, yeah, the old Duelist, yeah, with the die 12 hit points. And the original Cavalier and Barbarian, which in my mind are superior to the one in Unearthed Arcana, but that's a esoteric... All the incantatrix, you know, but yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I created a big folder, and this was called my... AD&D Bible, and this is how we were going to play. If I was going to have to go back and create a game from scratch and basically maintain it, I also had a weird thing happen just right before 4th edition came out. I went to a used bookstore in town called Crickets, and I was roaming around, and I found, for very cheap, a beautifully preserved copy of the old DM's Guide, Player's Handbook, and Monster Manual. I asked the guy how much, and he said five bucks. And I said, oh, for each? And he's like, no, for all three. Oh my gosh. So that also got me uh, started on that path, I guess. I used the word started. I'd always been there. But <laughs> thinking about maybe doing a first edition one-off. And that kind of took me in some different directions creatively. But more to the point, I decided after this that this was what I was going to do. And then slowly I began noticing that there were other people doing the same thing. They were resurrecting old editions, including the white box. I remember a rousing conversation with a guy who was playing, who insisted that all D&D &D was meant to be played with die six damage. You know, that's what Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay did. And I'm like, well, yeah, but Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay had a different aesthetic. So, yeah. But... Despite that, there was a lot of people looking back at the older stuff. Yeah, and just, it, it just really kicked off this uh, simultaneous explosion of people who they weren't going to mesh well with the new version of the game, and there just there was no way to overcome that. And hey, thank goodness for the power of them interwebs, because the next thing you knew. Uh, these people were communicating with one another, like, oh, hey, I'm running this kind of game. 
like, oh, well, I'm running that kind of game. I got a two, a second edition session going right now. And, oh, yeah, well, we just started a first edition one. Like over here, yeah, we're still running our old 3.5. And right. All the previous editions were suddenly coming back into prominence uh, out of nowhere. I mean, just very, very swift uh, space of a year or two, you saw this uh, not incremental, but, uh, you know, uh, what's the term for that? Uh, exponential. Exponential, Ex- okay. Exponential Where? growth of old school yeah. style gaming. And wow, what a time to be a part of. Yeah, and to borrow a hated corporate buzzword, there was a lot of synergy going on. There was a lot of cross energy. And yeah. uh, people were starting to come out with fanzines, blog sites. Grognardia was in its heyday before its <clears throat> editor. Anyway, less said on that, the better. But yeah, but that was a place to go to. And you were looking at things like Tunnels and Trolls, um, games like RuneQuest, people that kind of had lingered in the closets and back minds of some of these old gamers. And so there was a new, what is old is new again push. And it wasn't all nostalgia either. It was actual creative energy. Now other uh, companies took Labyrinth Lord and Sword and Wizardry and they made their own games basically, I don't want to say copy and pasting, but they took that basic game idea and made it their own. And I think that is also encouraging that how strong the original ideas are and they're resilient. And I think as game progressed, the D&D game specifically, when we were, Mike was talking about the fifth edition, I think that uh, I'll leave that off for a point that we'll come back to. But I think that this point shows true. That was what was missing, is that people had a different expectation coming into what D&D should be, and it wasn't being met. So people made their own market. And so this is where the OSR became the OSR revolution for me. It was kind of a punk ethos, and I yes, I know I use that, and maybe it doesn't apply for everybody in the OSR, but there was a punk ethos, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to play my own music. I'm going to do my own thing, and I don't care what the man says I should be doing. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm not doing this to be liked. I'm doing this because I love it. Uh, you know, that Lou Reed-esque, like, you know, I make the music that I make, and if people like it, that's awesome. And if people hate it, well, you know what? Uh, let them hate it. That's up to them. But as for me, this is what I'm doing one way or another. And I, that OSR moment... Just as it really broke loose nationally and internationally to some degree, but as it broke loose, you really began to notice this uh, "let the chips fall where they may" attitude. Yeah, I have I think a lot of enticing. fight on magazines that are collected in the hardback editions, which were just collective of people just gushing forth in the old school tradition of. Empire of Petal Throne, um, Arduin Grimoire, all those small little side esoteric projects, including even things like Dragon Quest. People were making games and adventures for them. And a lot of great things happened. Oh, yeah. Thanks to the preservation, which we have mentioned in past episodes, the preservation of the open gaming license, 
uh, and the Die 20 system being available to people who wanted to publish their own material. It also meant that just as fourth edition was you know coming fully into its own, uh, and so many people were backing away from it, there was this incredibly accessible vehicle for producing new product, for writing your own games, for just going ahead and taking chances on your own ideas, and for revisiting previous game concepts uh, and publishing them. So uh, the door had been opened. Okay? Oh, yeah. There and was just no way to close it. The barn door is open, the cows are out, and there's no going backwards from that. Yeah, that's where you got things like uh, Lamentations of the Plain Princess and other things that came out. And, of course, we're going to revisit that in a minute. But what we were doing during this time was playing with the usual cast of suspects. And we were played for about a year and a half, pretty much just hitting all the old notes. It yeah. was a nice nostalgia visit. And that's where I started to come out and say, we need to change this up. And so I'll let Mike ta uh, take this next part here about how we decided to change up right in the middle of the OSR. Yeah, things had been fully underway for a while. I mean, we did not, we certainly had been influenced by the talk of the OSR. And it, yeah, and it gaming a lot at that time too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was gaming with our familiar clique of gamers and we were dredging back up old stuff. But we weren't really doing anything new or that different. You know, it was more like that self-congratulatory, let's worship the old stuff. Yeah. Uh, and while it was enormous fun and oh, I yeah. have zero regrets, uh, the point was that we hadn't really shaken anything up or done anything different. And what changed was Randy got an idea. Uh <laughs> so many bad stories start with that. Okay. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, yeah, the same is true of myself. And Mike got an idea, and that's when things went straight to hell in a handbasket. Uh, and then they took away the handbasket. Well, he said, I want to create an open gaming table, old school style, doing first edition down at the comic book shop, with whoever signs up or walks in. And I thought at the time, you know, like I had some free time on my hands on weekends, and that was about it. That was really the only time I had off. And I had been bowing out of gaming for a little while because I'd, I'd been so backlogged with work, and I thought, you know what? Uh, if we're going to do first edition, that would be great. And his point was... Uh, it really took a team of two to work with brand new players who had never played first edition. Uh, somebody to DM, somebody to help coach, you know, explain the rules, uh, and act as a kind of guide and moderator. You know, like, this is how a person plays first edition D&D. Here's what to expect. Uh, and then let me help you understand some of these outdated and oftentimes very arcane and obscure rules. So with a second teammate in the building, you know, the two of us were ready. And we went down to the comic shop, uh, waited until we had a couple of people signed up, and then launched an old school first edition game. And it was open table, so the players were people we had never met before in our lives. <laughs> uh, 
And quite by surprise, uh, those of us who like might have thought of ourselves as stodgy gamers of the old school uh, found ourselves interacting with people many years younger than us uh, and you know, acting very much in a mentoring capacity where we, you know, exercised discretion over the table and people's conduct at it uh, because there were varying age groups, you know, between teens and 20s and, you know, like even up into the 40s. Yeah, we had a few uh, old hands come by and uh, want to play in an old school game. Yeah, you know, we, we found this incredible melting pot of different generations, different mindsets, uh, you know, different interests. And the insane thing is that we made it work. Uh, it didn't just fizzle out and go under. It kept growing. Uh, and growing. And I, I hesitate to use this word. I mean, it, it, there's a negative connotation, but I don't know any other better word for it. It metastized incredibly yeah. quickly, just expanding outwards. And in the space of a couple of years... We found ourselves like branching off, uh, you know, both like I was no longer a player, but a fellow DM operating an entire second table with both tables having eight to ten players per session. We branched off and kicked off a third DM. Uh, basically, we were just spawning yellow musk creeper DMs every which way uh, <laughs> until the basement of that place was just packed with gamers every weekend and others began to pick up the mantle. I mean, the building changed owners three times just during that. And mm -hmm. the one consistent thing every comic shop owner inherited from the previous one was the click of gamers at the core that brought in, you know, like 20 to 40 people per month uh, and each different people. But like every weekend, these same groups of people would appear at one time or another. Saturdays, Sundays, you know, whatever day worked for that click. Uh, but they wound up with this thriving atmosphere of at-the-table gaming that was spawned in an empty basement by two outdated relics of another era who just wanted to play a first edition game and show people, hey... We're not saying the new editions are terrible, but we would like to share with you what made it so amazing to us at the time. And here is the classic late 70s, early 80s D&D experience so that you can have that too. Yeah, and we gave, we played old modules. We uh, did a few of our own homebrew written ones. We did our, and for about three or four years, uh, we just hit all the notes, and we ran one singular campaign, and we built up a player core of almost 20 people, and that's when we decided to start on two campaigns concurrent new, and we ran those successfully for another couple of years. And uh, But at that time, we had, geez, I mean, there's, as I look back at the notes, there's like some 68 people. That drifted in and out. Some stayed for a game or two. Others, oh yeah, uh, uh, stayed with us and still game with us. And you know, some others, uh, while they drifted off of real life or other obligations, college, you know, marriage, and all that, we still maintain uh, contact with them. And having that diversity, that 
singular moment opened up not only our eyes, but also made us more versatile as dungeon masters, as gamers, and as men. And yeah, we are, are we not men? Are we Devo? <laughs> so, are we DMs? I don't know. Sometimes you have to ask yourself that question. But, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of mentoring going on that we just didn't have. And I think that looking back, that is the singular most positive thing I've ever done in gaming. Yeah, I likewise. I, I have no other way to put it except that one of the most exciting and fulfilling and rewarding moments in 30 years, or no, 38 Oof. years, 38 years of gaming, uh, one of the most rewarding things I have ever done was that time period of uh, assisting and then eventually putting my DM hat back on for the first time in many years. Uh, I had DM'd in Lansing and then, you know, laid the mantle down when I moved back to Battle Creek and just relaxed and, you know, played as a player. Uh, but picking the mantle back up, oh, it was great. And it also pushed me out of my comfort zone. Uh, you know, for all that some people, you know, like use the word safe space as some kind of dirty word, mm. uh, you know, you often see those same people hiding in their safe space. They, they can't exist anywhere else. They don't want to. They don't take risks. They don't step out of their, their little, say, you know, comfy zone. Uh, I got to say, gaming with almost a continual stream of random people sharpened my skills. Uh, it challenged me. It obligated me to work out ways to make people liaison with one another and yep. work together. Yeah, we became more facilitators than we did just administrators of a game. Yeah, instead of just being an arbiter, I mean, you were like this traffic cop. That yeah. like, okay, okay, you move here. All right, uh, the light has changed. Your turn. You move over here. Those really nuanced skills of DMing came back to life stronger than they had ever been when I was younger. And man, what a great time I had the whole time, too. Yeah, and here we are reminiscing about it, but here let's uh, re-steer this back. So that, there we were on the front lines, and I shifted from that first early uh, year or two after 4th edition was released with Game of My uh, Buddies and started uh, diversifying my experience. And I quit interacting with the OSR. And when I came back to it, what a mess. What an absolute mess. Uh, yeah, the bedshitting moment from James Malashevsky in Grognardia is one of great shame. And then only equaled by James Raggy in the complete total meltdown of a human being online in slow motion. Wow. Uh, yeah, people who were considered uh, well, the elite and the rock stars of this, and they and they reveled in it. Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they deservedly had a reputation as having been principal internet uh, advocates for the old school revolution. So they had. I'm not saying they didn't earn that mantle to begin with. Sure, but did they really honor? They were not great stewards with the responsibility no. and fame that they were given. Uh, and more importantly, Gondor then, needs Gondor needs no king. You know. Yeah, 
John Norton Snow. Yes, George uh, Phipps was not well. Everybody taken. else was. Everybody else was waiting for the sword that was broken to come back, and instead we did not get the leaders that we needed. We well, it was a leaderless community, but certain people yeah. had enthroned themselves as leaders, and they fell very quickly. And more importantly. That's the lesson here. If you're a part of the OSR during this time, it is heightened by Stuart Robertson's revoking his OSR. Now, if you don't uh, logo, which caused for me just absolutely uh, clenched jawed, balled up fist anger at this. Uh, I know that there has been an ugly undercurrent in the OSR. We all know it is. And this is where it started to become less of a resistance and revolution that was consuming itself. When Stuart Robertson said that he was no longer going to let his OSR logo, which was the geomorphic blue scale OSR kind of in the uh, same attempt as the TSR logo. But he yeah. created and given it fair use. And he says, you know what? A lot of people are creating games with some very disturbing co- and unintellectually honest content. And so I'm going to say that uh, he was right on the fucking the money. He said he was legally drawing it from anybody who creates transphobic, racist, or... Uh, insensitive material. Now, that's for some said, hey, that sounds like censorship to me. Hey, he lets you use it for free, and now he puts conditions on it. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you got free intellectual property. And, and everybody was happy when it was free. I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, uh, if you have somebody, you know, like, lend you a thing to help you, not knowing that you're going to use it to advocate some things that... Uh, in some cases, we're not merely negative or awkward, but downright horrific. When it's still that person's IP, they do have both a legal and a moral right to do with their IP as they see fit. And I can't really gainsay that. So, despite people's complaints, I mean, that was kind of a signal moment. Yeah, we were just People getting were in, back into the, the OSR. I was re-engaging with it. We were going to Ten Cars Tavern. I was uh, talking to people in Discord, nightly promoting our uh, podcast, because I felt like this was an audience that maybe we could take this to a new level or do something different with it. And we ended up getting some very fine people out of the OSR, and I, and I am very grateful for that. Oh, but, yeah, look, uh, when we say that there's an undercurrent that is very ugly within the OSR... This does not mean that the OSR is made up exclusively of that. There are no. a lot of terrific people fighting to keep old-school-style old gaming alive in a much more modern era. And you know what? We're still with those people 100%. Like, because okay, it's bring... part of our DNA. It's yeah. who we are. And you can't take that out of me, and I can't change it. The exchange of ideas, the... It, passing along of influences uh, and the referencing of classical materials that will be of great use to future creatives and DMs everywhere. Still on board with that. Yeah. So, yeah kudos to all of the people in OSR. And they were so hostile to the, the fifth work. edition, which uh, when I saw it, you know, I was playing a lot of Pathfinder at the time. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. I really support it because I want a good D&D. Yeah, I want to see D&D. And people are like, what? You like playing Pathfinder? Don't you hate 5th Edition? No. I love it. I really loved it. Because I loved the ability to pick and choose what parts of the rules you wanted to use. You could make it your own game. And each game was going to be a reflection of its individual DM or 
Yeah, group. people have complained about the simplicity, but the tools are there to in rapidly increase the complexity yes. of the game. Uh, the depth, the difficulty, all of that can be radically altered to be more in line with the DM's personal ideas, which the idea, to me, of letting the people who are at that one particular table decide which collections of rule sets they're going to work with, wow, I mean, that's more like it, okay? I mean, yeah. the, the old it respects the old homebrew system, except that it formalized it and just handed people, like, hey, here's a tray of options. You, you don't want to use skills? Don't yeah. use skills. You want to you wanna do this just really low-key, very stripped-down, bare-bones, simple, fast mechanics to not get bogged down and, you know, focus on both moving the story arc along while getting your combat over with quickly. Hey, there's tools for that. Now, you want to go mondo in-depth, where, like, you guys better be on your A-game for this. Those tools are there, too. So my approval was much stronger at the onset of 5th edition. I, I had some reservations about the clumsiness of their early release dates, but you're right. It was about that time period we noticed that there was an element within OSR that had an oppositional relationship to the game ever moving forward in any way. And, and that's when we decided that, you know, you're clean. When Stuart Robertson said, hey, you can't use it, and I noticed that not only did that ugly side really raise up, it carried along some voices, and that's when I started to really, just like before, like, you know, you're clinging too hard to this. You either are or you are not. And if you're trying to enforce something that you think you are, you're not it. And sorry to any of those people, not sorry, uh, that we lost along the way that initially joined up with us, um, yeah, they're not here anymore. They don't call in. And there's a reason for that. And I think this is at our 200th episode where I really wanted to talk about this. And I'll, I'm going to kind of bury it like this. While we invoke it, it's not something I enjoy. I turn my back on the OSR as a movement and embraced it as just who I am. And that's why I had to say au revoir, OSR. I'm always going to have that old school DNA running through me. Oh, yeah. Can't be helped. Uh, the thing that had occurred to me at the time that it, it started to be really weird as we were looking into OSR just a few years ago uh, was what was left compared to what it started as. And I, I had mused... A little while ago that what I think transpired was, you know, success tests a man as surely as failure, <laughs> in the words of, you know, the, the terrific Conan the Barbarian movie. Uh, what happens after you win? Okay, fourth edition happened. A lot of people were very upset about that. OSR came up in response to that and used every tool available to it to resuscitate gaming in its earlier forms which was, I think, a terrific and noble endeavor. Yes. Now, in Victory, the 5th edition reflected a more nuanced approach to, to gaming in Dungeons & Dragons that pulled in some of the early material and the early style of gameplay while also keeping hold of a connection to some of the newer things that had been... Yeah, they were trying system. to move forward. And I respect that. Look, 
Do I love every single thing without reservation? No, I do not. But I was very happy with the fact that the direction of the company had shifted, the voices of people had been heard, uh, the concerns had actually been measurably, like visibly addressed. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a moment of victory to me. Like, wow, okay, you know what? We're heading back into familiar D&D territory, which is what I asked for, and I got what I wanted. And two things happened that I wanted. The first one was that people had taken up gaming in the old school style and were drawing inspiration from it all over the country. And the all second over the world. Thing, yeah, all over the planet. Uh, and the second thing that had happened was that the company itself, uh, Wizards of the Coast, had gone back to the drawing board and said, okay, we, we, this did not work. We're being outsold by other people. Pathfinder was outselling D&D. They really had to, you know, think it through. The writing was on the wall. And it was clear, and you, you couldn't really market buzzword talk your way out of this in a corporate office. Hey, we know, ran out of runway. We <laughs> Yeah, if you look at this the right way, yeah, we're making less money than the other people, and we're selling and less there's stuff. An and there's an independent market that had sprung up, and we're still, <laughs> to the benefit of that, I think that is one of the greatest things that came out of the OSR, is the legitimization of the independent market with the DMs Guild drive through RPG. But what happened in victory? Now, what, what happened to me in victory is that the people who got what I got out of that victory left. I mean, they'd won. And who was left behind? Okay, the, the people who... Victory would never be enough for them. They had other agendas other than the well-being, mm. prosperity, and yeah. success of gaming as a hobby. That was not their primary emphasis. Not, I want gaming to be successful. I want people to engage in gaming. I think gaming is awesome. That was not the remaining core's chief interest. So, you know, why would you be part of an old school gaming, you know, support group uh, and, you know, so-called revolution if you're not really, if your chief emphasis is not the encouragement of gaming, you know, <laughs> if you have all these other agendas... You're not really yeah, about Yeah, you're not gaming. really there for us, okay? They're not... These were not good actors. These were not people whose intentions were clear and earnest and, you know, uh, rooted in something positive. There was a lot of toxicity left over. And I'm not saying it was all toxicity, but a lot of the loudest voices in the room, the, the biggest shadows cast upon the scene were by these polarizing figures who had transformed online conversations about old-school gaming into a sideshow, like just an aspect of a larger approach to a culture war, which I have zero interest in participating in that. that I, uh, the world no. has always been in a culture war because there's always... Well, like, not only just who you are yeah, as a person... Generations crash into each other and have differing values and things like that in every generation ever. It is an eternal process. Well, right. Well, so this characterization of like, oh, this well, is, this one's for the money. This one's the special one. That is just salesmanship, and it's been very lucrative for people who have cast their, you know, their lot in this. As you know, the, I'm I'm fighting the good fight for the and. 
I do not think of those people as good actors. I, I mm -hmm. do not think they have been acting for the benefit of gamers and or gaming. And that, for me, is what made me walk back participation as like a person who thought of himself as OSR. Uh, well, I, I guess now uh, I'm OSR in my own way, in the punk ethos of whatever, man, do this my way. In the United States or whatever. That's where we belong. Uh, no, I, I would definitely say that you're not a you're not a, a casual bystander. I am a casual bystander in the culture wars. I choose to ally with a few people and that's about it. You and my friend unfortunately don't have that luxury. <laughs> well yeah, all right. I do have a I do have a dog in some of that fight. Uh, the the virulent response to inclusivity uh, has been a little surprising to me because uh, there's a pretense that just because so much of the very early origins of gaming was frankly Midwestern, uh, white and male, that it must therefore ever be so. Uh, I'm not addicted to the world staying like it was in my childhood. I mean, I have my old, you know, get off my lawn moments, but that's not the way life works in any other aspect of our lives. That's You that's can't change that do. part of you because we are part, uh, people of our time and our culture. And you can't, but you can respect the well, differences that are inherent and understand your place where you I, are now. No one can alter where they came from, but you're in charge of where you're going. Right, and, and you can create your own, it. you know. Yeah, and so that's why we move forward with things. Like, I run into people on the Glorantha forums now, since we're doing a lot of RuneQuest, and they talk about the, you know, well, you, why did you stop playing RuneQuest? Well, in 1988, uh, Avalon Hill pretty much quit publishing stuff for it, and it slowly drove, dried up. Yeah, it was pretty hard to find and sourced material. And so, for that. if I wanted to, and there weren't times where I didn't want to break out Stormbringer or RuneQuest again, but I just said that you know I don't have the materials, and I don't want to put a game in people's hands that's going to cost hundreds of dollars from eBay squids. And so they came out with a new version, and now suddenly I can put a book in their hands for a pretty decent price, and say, uh, and yeah, you can walk in with fifty, sixty bucks and come out with a really nice book, and yeah. So, yeah, it's new stuff for uh, some people, but it's always been there for others. That's where it comes together, and that's where I want to be is progressing forward. Even if I use older stuff, the lore, like, hey, we're still talking about J.R. Token. Oh, yeah. The Middle Earth, and whether you hate it or like it, here's the thing. That dude and Robert E. Howard, they created a world worth talking about. They create worlds worth exploring and delving into. And they're always going to be interesting because they achieve what is termed the classic. They have hit things well. And so... Oh, much like uh, Michael Moorcock. Oh, and, wait. And I, I'm starting to feel dizzy for a moment. There's something casting its spell over me. <laughs> wait, I'm starting to... Oh, oh. Ah, yes. The time for... The casting of the arcane eye. 
You have been enthralled by the arcane eye. Where will the arcane eye next cast its eldritch gaze? Yes, and this is a part of the show as we're starting to wind down. We want to talk about some projects, people, and things. And yes, this is stolen from Plot Slime, but thanks for that. Uh, we're going to use ours as this part of the show where we talk about things that we see or people we see. And this is a person that I want to celebrate is the Black Christie One on Twitter. If you're not following, if you're on D&D Twitter or role-playing Twitter, you need to be following the Black Christie One. Uh, it's just like it's spelled there. Uh, she is a mom. She is a video gamer. She is a painter. She is a tabletop gamer. And she is a wonderful person who shares a lot of her experiences and creative aspects online. And, yeah, she's very vocal, and she's rather political. So she has some sharp elbows. And yeah, be warned, in fairness. In fairness. But she is somebody that is in, as a person of color, who is fighting for their place in gaming and has to because they've lost their account now, I believe, twice <laughs> due to being mass flagged by the people we were speaking of. Ah, yes, the, the perennial bad actors. Uh, but to stitch it together and to form a bridge between the beginning of this podcast and the end of well, this podcast... Well, we have to first cease the arcane eye. Ah. Dispels its hold on you. And now we return you back to... Oh, wow. Wow, man, I was just totally taken. Did something happen? Do I have some missing time? What happened? Uh, yeah, and there's a crop circle in the backyard oh, now, wow. too. All right. You don't know what those spell effects, uh, you know, side effects can be. I feel like I lost consciousness for a long period. <laughs> anyway, what Gazing were, were you the ether with his arms held above his head for a period of no less than 45 minutes or until so his get arms started. get tired. Uh, well... Uh, to bridge the beginning to the ending, a part of what we're about right from the onset of this podcast was creating a bridge between the origins of gaming and the current incarnation of gaming, and hopefully prognosticating or ever so slightly influencing its future, uh, or at the very least, ensuring its future. Because we're living in a momentary golden age of gaming, and there's no telling if it'll, you know, last the ages. Uh, it, we've seen it wax and wane before, like, you know, the autumn moon. And sometimes it has loomed large over the gaming scene, and other times there's just been scarcely any light to see by. Uh, our hope, our, our kind of goal, is that if the inspirations and origins are accessible and remembered by people if they have contact with them, uh, that it will provide inspiration for creatives and DMs and players as they move the game and many different kinds of games forward into the future. And I, I cannot describe how excited I am to see what that future holds. Well, hey, man, if you're worried about where it's headed in the future, you're not going to enjoy it now. So just, hey, I, wherever it leads, I'm going. And that's where I'm at. So, I'll all right. So, hmm? I'll be in the thick of it. That's right. You'll find me rolling dice and moving my mice. Anyway, so uh, that's who we are. Yeah, this got a little uh, 
intense at times. And all right, uh, kind of been holding it in, so it's well, cathartic to let it hey, go. Getting out of the comfort zone. Nothing wrong with that. Right, and it's a 200 episode, so time to let it loose. So anyway, we hope you enjoyed. Uh, we'll be doing the casting, the augury, I think, at the first part of the show. Yes, we'll, beginning of our next so show. So our next we show. start with casting the augury. Right. And, and then uh, we will close with, uh, or just before close, we will. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Some arcane spell could be cast on you. And if you have a the project or. The eye may fall upon your doings. If you have a project or something you'd like to have us take a look at, why just send us, as thoughts on this, like just one email. For just one email. Self-addressed stamped email. Walla <laughs> <laughs> uh, Washington. To us here at the Dice are Screaming, and you can do that through, um, I believe, uh, we'll have to set up a new email account for that. Maybe I didn't quite think this thing through. <gasps> yeah, so we'll get that going, but uh, for right now, just let us know on our Facebook page. Yes. And uh, we'll do it. And so uh, with that, without further ado, we're going to wrap it up. And again, I hope you enjoyed. And if you did, give us a little little follow button and uh, you can get notified when our next podcast is already put on the web, which this one will soon be. So until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. (laughs) 